This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... GM advice in scenario text. Mummification enthusiast Gottfried Nock. Heather O'Neill. And fighting back against early Rome. totally take you down in God's Forge. No way! My Apocalypse Titan is too powerful for your puny Crystal Phoenix. What you don't know is that my Great House's special ability is to always beat you! Ha ha! Oh wait, you win. That was seriously fast. Yep, that's because of the simultaneous play in God's Forge. And also because of my Great House's special power. Isn't that from the new expansion for God's Forge? Yep, and you can get yours too on Kickstarter on November 8th. God's Forge 2nd Edition plus two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods, and Twilight of the Great Houses. You are a great mage battling for the last reservoir of the magic element Ethereum. Craft creations and cast spells to defeat your rivals, leaving you as Master of the God's Forge. With quick and fun simultaneous play. Starts on Kickstarter from November 8th. Ends on Kickstarter December 8th. Learn more at atlas-games.com Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut today, we've got, oh, look at that, Robin, we've got our, our computer set up, our laptop is set up, but not to do fun things like play music or show characters, pictures of Vikings. Nope, it's setting up because we have to write scenarios. We're behind on our scenario writing, and we have to write them. But when we are writing scenarios, Robin, you and I, it's not enough to just write how we would play the game. We have to think of other GMs. And when we do that, we have to put ourselves into their heads and hopefully help them run the best scenario possible. And that leads you, I think, ineluctably, to giving GM advice in the text of the scenario, if only of the sort don't kill the characters with this encounter. It's the first encounter, right? Right, which you would think would be obvious. Mm-hmm. But when you hear people come to complain to you about how other people run their games, turns out not. Yeah. And so I've been grappling with this a bit more as I work on Casilda's Song, which is the epic campaign for the Ola King role-playing game, and I'm partway through it now. And as I write more of it, I find myself more so than I would have when I started out stopping to not only explain that you should do X, but also why? Why would you do this in a game in a way that is, you know, serving the function of gaming on this show as of it, not just, you know, here's how to make this scenario good, but here's a general principle that you should always apply. And I think it happens more when you are facing the GM with a choice of, well, here's one ending, or you could do this other ending, The players can do A, B, or C. And as you're moving away from the, well, here's the, not necessarily linear per se, but the one way that I think the scenario is going to go. And if it goes on a branch, well, you're good, GM, you can handle it. The more you discuss what the other possible branches could be, or the more time 
you spend writing different little things that could happen or don't necessarily happen, the more I think you need to explain why would you make this choice? Because I've seen a lot of writing where the GM is offered a choice between A and B, but it doesn't explain what thought process would go into that. And part of it is just like, okay, yeah, you can say, well, whatever you feel like at the moment. But again, one thing that I've learned over the years is that telling people, yeah, just do whatever seems right for the story is a platitude that you can't put into action. That if you don't know what works best for the story, you need the scenario to give you a little help because the scenario is not just a thing that you run once, but it's a teaching document that shows you how to create adventures of your own, including ones that you jot down little notes for, including ones that you might write for a community publishing product, or ones that you improvise on the fly and showing you how to internalize all these little techniques and principles. That's far from the the, I think, older but still common model of, I'm just going to sort of describe what happens in your game and then you try to replicate it. And it's fun to read a sort of gaming closet drama. So where do you fall on the different, where, where is it good to put GM advice and where is it just sort of telling people the obvious and filling up your word camp? I mean, what I, I think when I offer GM advice, it's not so much in the, here's what you do. And here's why you do it structure that you're talking about. I think I'm more likely to say this seems to me like a cool way to run it or a cool opportunity for this thing to happen. I like to offer it as sort of friendly, you know, Hey, you and me are in this together friend and let's work together to make this game super fun and and squeeze all the juice out of this orange. And I think that's sort of the approach that I take with scenarios. I mean, sometimes you do have to say explicitly, do not kill everyone in this encounter, or ideally the players will pick up X, but if they don't, you can do Y. Right. And sometimes when you're saying that, that's because you got playtest feedback going, right. I killed everybody in this encounter. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that didn't occur to me. I'd better not only put in some guardrails for that, but also explicit advice if the guardrails get busted. Yeah. The um, playtest response that's another big, uh, usually it's a bonus. Sometimes it is not a bonus, but let's pretend that the playtesters were all good and conscientious. It's a bonus. And so you get a sense of how other GMs ran it besides how you ran it in your head or how you ran it in your uh, initial test. And you can sort of have those GMs be part of that conversation that you're having with the GM who's going to read this book. I like to put in, if there is valuable playtest information or the playtest sort of departs wildly from what you think is going to happen. I like to put in a warning or a note that says in playtest, sometimes this happened. You know, if you don't want that to happen, be aware. And here's a couple of ways to short circuit or redirect that. But in the sort of in the, in the general run of things, I don't like to, you know, show my work in that way because I feel like more often people are buying the ticket to see the weird, funny man do funny things, not uh, hear a lot of discourse about how we wrote the puppet script. Right. And so a lot of, I think, the key advice that you tend to make or install into your text is, again, exploring why you would do X or why you would do Y. And that allows you to create a situation that is more player dynamic, that, you know, creates a, in this case they're all mysteries because it's gumshoe they're mysteries to different degrees sometimes following the structure sometimes not depending on which of the sequence it is but there's always moments built into them where and here's where you let the player take the wheel so often there's a bunch of discovering what's going on the mystery part and then there's reacting 
to the mystery. The downside of doing that is that some people do read these as closet drama and never actually play them. They just imagine themselves playing them. And I think they're a little bit disappointed to have the narrative broken. But part of that is, uh, you know, I've always fallen down on the uh, scenarios are for use. That's the main thing. And they're to help you play better. And that even if you're, even if you're just reading the scenario and you're never going to run it, if you, A, picture how fun it would be if you did run it and have that going on in your head, and then B, go, oh, here's a way to handle, you know, character imprisonment, for example, this classic problem. We've talked about it before in a show. We often talk about it at panels, but it doesn't hurt to talk about it yet another time. And the advantage of doing it in the context of the scenario is, it's an example unto itself, right? Right. You've got a worked example, right? It's easier for us to say, oh, well, make sure the players always feel that they have a chance that their players or that the characters are going to get out of imprisonment right from the jump. Well, here's a chance to show that in practice, or, you know, you might also have, you know, the, the thing that you see that a GM might improvise and wish they hadn't. And you can say, well, you could have them all rounded up and taken out of the city. Uh, you've established the logic where that would happen, but that would be boring. So here's how not to do that if it comes up. And I think that's probably even a better piece of adventure design. What not to do. Mm-hmm. Don't follow the logic of this all the way to something that is out of genre and not fun. Then telling jams what to do, because that's inherently part of a scenario, whether you call it out or not. Yeah, the um, one thing that I do notice in my own uh, writing of scenarios is that often there will be a thing that needs to happen for the scenario to go forward. This is the fundamental thing that Gumshoe exists to make to smooth the road of. And when it's a character action, like stealing the laptop in the sample adventure in Sentries or getting into Vienna in the Carmela Sanction, I give a lot of examples of how you could do it. But then I say something on the order of, any halfway reasonable sounding player scheme should succeed. This then gives you the sort of metric for what the challenge ratings are and how dangerous it should feel and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you've learned by a bunch of examples, all of which are also a potential creativity starters for the GM or things they can offer to the players. However, they drop hints and then the sort of, the, again, it's a reassurance. It's a, I'm with you, buddy. It's not a, you know, uh, you fool, how dare you run this scenario approach? And then you and me know that this has to happen. So I'm giving you permission to let their seemingly sketchy and ill thought plan somehow work. Just maybe inform it with this, you know, mechanical, uh, structure or whatever. Yeah. You type halfway reasonable, not reasonable. That's yeah, a yeah. thing that I put again and again and again into the same scenario repeatedly because it's very easy for the GM to miss it or to take it literally or to think that, you know, here's three ways to solve this problem. Uh, it's very easy even for a GM who knows better and you as the writer who knows better for them to walk away going, well, there's only three ways. They're going to have to pixel bitch their way out of this mm-hmm. one and, you know, say it again and again and again. And that not only uh, to reinforce the point makes that moment in the scenario better, but it hammers that lesson home to players when they're improvising or jams when they're improvising. Now they are less likely to create a pixel bitching scenario on an improvised scenario of their own, because often you don't think of what the solution is at all. Yeah. You just wait for them to come up with and go, Oh yeah, that sounds right. But still that creates a lesson because I mean, it's, it's like if, if every dance instructor had to stop and say, now if the other dancer just sits down on the floor, this is what happens. I mean, you're always assuming 
in dance that the other person is also dancing, that the two of you are working together to dance, that it's a partnership and you're exchanging uh, information fundamentally by your steps and by leading or following. And I think improvisational GMing has a lot of that in common where you know your players. And so you do a thing that you know that they can dance to, right? You, you lay down a beat that they can dance to. You don't hit them with something wild that they have no response to, that they would sit down on the floor instead of play. You, you know, you're there on the floor to move. And I feel like if you're just doing it, you and your group, you don't necessarily need to be told, you know, here's the handholdy. But for some reason, players running or GMs running from a scripted adventure or a rewritten and pre-written adventure, maybe they get nervous. Maybe they're like, oh, now I'm not dancing. You, now you just it's take the, it literally, I think, and get locked in, right? It's if- the score. It's the musicians that are running this, not me. I'd better sit quietly and wait for the measure. And that, of course, then ruins your rhythm and you don't attract the worm, I think. Right. And you also might be thinking, well, this seems a little restrictive, but I'm sure the scenario will get me out of this later. (laughs) uh, Sometimes it doesn't. Right. And also, I I guess another point I would like to make is that uh, when you're writing scenarios, you are teaching people how to improvise, whether they run this scenario or not. Uh, One of the main ways to learn how to make up scenarios of your own is to not only play in a bunch of them run by other people, these days to watch on streaming platforms, uh, people running games, and you can see how they do it. But especially in a new game, uh, you don't necessarily know what a typical uh, Yellow King or Knight's Black Agents uh, game is the first time you pick up the book. And having good GM advice that's keyed to that game to the, in this case, to, to the relationship between finding information and making choices. That's something that you may be a great improviser of, you know, F20 games or of, uh, you know, cyberpunk, but those all have different choices built into them. And the advice that you would put into a cyberpunk scenario is not necessarily at all the same that you would give to a, a gumshoe one, where, for example, the concern about the narrative never stopping, you might be more willing to have your characters captured in a, a cyberpunk game. And it's like, yep, getting out, that's you, the thing that you're figuring out. And that's the whole point of this scenario, because you're punks against the system. You're not going to get the hand-holding that you would get in something that's trying to keep a, a mystery scenario going. So or that's the, trying to portray uh, hyper-competent characters. Yeah. Yeah, the thing about it, if you're doing a, a cyberpunk scenario... And, and with any scenario for any game, you also, of course, uh, are drawing what are the parameters, what's possible. So in a cyberpunk game, even if it's a gumshoe cyberpunk game, you know, maybe no one in the game in the game table has thought, oh, we don't need to escape. We just need to upload our consciousness and our consciousness can escape. You know, if you're running Eclipse phase, uh, that's sort of baked into the setting. But I don't think players think that. And even just presenting that as. Sadly, there is a, you know, software cage around the room and you can't upload your consciousness that tells you, oh, I could have uploaded my consciousness or if I can disrupt this software cage, then we can upload our consciousness and escape. So even the sort of, you know, doors that are set in your path are also information about what happens if they open? What if the cage breaks down? What if we can bribe the cops and they don't run us out of town? What if we can do these? And I think a good GM knows all the possibilities of the setting or of the game system and provides as many examples as possible of ways that you could resolve a problem using the the, the core activity or the spirit or the rules 
or setting elements that are in, inherent in the game. Like if you don't know that there's a river running through the city, you'll never think, oh, I get on a boat and escape that way. You have to be told, right? Right. And another thing that advice in scenarios can do is flag when you are breaking protocol. So it might be that, uh, you know, you've established that this is a hard scrabble game. If you get captured, you're going to be captured. You're not allowed to whinge. There's uh, capturing and escaping in this game. It's fundamental. But you might have another scenario later in the same book where it's like, okay, yes, you could be captured here. Yes, it is generally, this is a very capture game. But we had a whole other scenario just last time that's just totally about a prison break. So this time around, although you would normally do X, instead this time, do Y. And do Y for this reason, for variety, to make sure that it's not too samey-samey. Or, uh, you know, this is verging too much on, on this other thing. So that is a, a particularly when you start to, as a scenario writing, well, the standard way to do this is like that, but this one needs a slightly different thing. I think that's another place where you want to break out and, and, you know, show your work, show why it is that you're doing this other thing. The drawback of all of this, of course, is that it increases word count. Yep. And if you're fighting to get something within a, a certain number of words, the easiest stuff to drop is the stuff that doesn't directly create or control the narrative, but it may be the most important and valuable stuff that you could put in in there. And that would be useful to the GM long after they've run your adventure because it lives with them as they create more of them. Yeah. And this is the same structure or stricture that you have with any sort of creative activity is that you're presenting something and it by definition is boundless. It, it reaches into every aspect of life. That's the whole point of it. So yeah, you could make a simple, you know, a dungeon delve into a whole book and people have, you could do, you know, Cthulhu rises in nine pages and Sandy Peterson did. So it's format is another constraint that you have. And ideally your core book has enough GMing advice in it that you can say, all right, this is where you'd run a chase for advice on how to make chases good. See page, whatever in the core book. And then you know, you've offloaded that job onto your former self or onto the author of the core book, whoever it is. And you can move on to the specifics of the adventure. In this case, here is the thing that may tweak the rules or that may offer characters a wild, fun opportunity or whatever, right? And that then does lay down, as you say, the narrative of the story and advance it because it's important to the narrative that there's a river through this city or whatever, right? Right. Well, uh, now that we've established some first principles, it's time for us to delve further and deeper into this podcast. And I believe the route lies through this here exciting commercial. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery 
for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. The musty pages of the volumes that we've taken down from the shelf, the a smell of truth and footnotes and first-hand accounts and secondary sources tell us that we're once more... Oh, but wait a minute. Is this mummy fluid I smell as well? This is going to be a, a super weird, extra crazy version of the History Hut, thanks to this question from beloved patron backer Brett Kramer, who says, Gottfried Nacht. In the late 19th century Venezuela, a German-born doctor named Gottfried Nacht conducted experiments in mummification at his laboratory in the forest near La Guira, and he developed an embalming fluid based on an aluminum chloride compound that mummified corpse... Well, you know what? Instead of having Brett tell the story, I'm going to have you tell the story, Ken. Tell us all about Gottfried Nock. Yeah. First of all, good enthusiasm, Brett. Love to see it. But if you put just Gottfried Nock question mark, we'll get to the mummying. That's Well, kind some of- people need to pitch... Like why this is why Gottfried knocked to, to his sell boss. us on a segment. So right. I'm well, not fair enough. Quibble at all. All right. Uh, with the question, I'm just going to make you do the work. Make me do the work. Fair enough. Gottfried Nock, born in 1813 in Germany, goes to the medical school of the University of Freiburg. His Wikipedia entry carefully does not say became a doctor. <laughs> And moved to La Guaira in Venezuela, which is the port of Caracas. So it's on the Caribbean Sea there. You know, balmy Caribbean breezes, also balmy Caribbean tropical infections. And there he self-declares his doctor? Is this what I, how I take things? Uh, sort of says, I'm here. I've got more medical training than the next bunch of people. Also, there's a cholera epidemic and yellow fever. Who's going to be a big baby about yes, it? Yes, I, I went to med school. And in 1845, he does get a medical degree from the University of Caracas in Venezuela. So... Now he's Dr. Knock for sure. He helps found a hospital, uh, San Juan de Noches in La Guaira. And again, La Guaira, this is before Caracas sort of blows up in population. La Guaira is where all the business is done in uh, Caracas. It's like Alexandria, but for Venezuela. And it also has a giant European expat community, many of them German. So Knock moves in there. Now that he's got his degree, now that he's founding a hospital, he can bring his wife and his son over to uh, Venezuela with him. And he does so well that he is able to purchase a rancho known as Rancho Buena Vista because it's up on the mountains about two miles away from La Guaira, between La Guaira and Caracas. And uh, it has a Buena Vista, a good view of the ocean because it's so high up in the mountains. And this is where I will insert the first of the tidbits that I obtained from a website called drnoca.com that I have not been able to confirm. But Rancho Buena Vista, according to this website, which is very attractive. Well, if it looks good, it must be true. Is a reconstructed castle built in 1612 by Teutonic Knights. And you may say to yourself, what are Teutonic Knights doing in Venezuela in 1612? And the answer is looking for gold. The same thing everyone was doing in Venezuela in 1612. The uh, website says it was a coffee plantation. I don't believe. And maybe they found gold if they had enough to build build a a castle. castle. Well, back in those days, you just had to have a sword and a convenient bunch of uh, Indians that you could bully and enslave. So 
Gold was not as required back in those days. But the, the, the website said it was a coffee plantation, which I don't say it never was between 1612 and 1860, but it wasn't in 1612. There were no coffee plantations, certainly in the New World in that period. Yes, so, Teutonic Knights building a castle, plausible. Coffee, forget about it. Nonsense. But anyway, while he is in the process of moving to Rancho Buena Vista, the big civil war in Venezuela is broken out, much like our civil war. This one is called the Federal War, and it produces a lot of battlefield uh, injuries that he treats. As far as anyone can say, uh, Noka is always very good about treating the poor for free and treating people that the government of Venezuela wants him to treat. Man who wants a medical degree from the University of Caracas. Nothing unsavory happens if you're a living patient. Exactly. But while experimenting on the suddenly plentiful cadavers, he invents his mummification fluid. And this is probably around 1865, but there is no date on it. So you can move it back and forth however you like. Again, DrNoka.com says he was inspired by tantric monks. I doubt <laughs> that, but you know, and again, tantrism mummification, they're all about remaining very, very still and not losing any of your fluids. I guess not. A big leap, but see, still. See, that claim, you know, throws the coffee claim into doubt. <laughs> it, well, it throws everything into doubt, quite frankly. In 1878, uh, he allegedly mummifies the president of Venezuela after his death, I hasten to add, Francisco Linares Alcantara. He mummifies dogs and puts them around his laboratory. His rancho, by the way, contains so the... Let, let me just back you up here. How allegedly is the allegedly on mummifying the president? You'd think that would have, you know, documentation. That surfaces in a Venezuelan tourist website. So that's less allegedly than just drnoka.com, but it does not make its way into Wikipedia. So it's in a sort of twilight zone of allegedly. He also allegedly mummified a revolutionary journalist, but... The revolutionary journalist died almost before Noka gets to Venezuela, and certainly before he develops his mummification serum. So that's probably yeah, a once you start mummifying people, there's other folks just get attached to your legend, right? Yeah, they and most of them are making fun of this guy because he was sort of a parlor revolutionary, parlor pink, and since he was mummified sitting at a table, allegedly, it's like, well, he died as he lived, sitting yeah, at a table so doing a nothing. Dog story, so it's a bit. Which I love, by the way. Anyway, I should mention that the mummification is an improved mummification. You just inject it into the jugular vein of the corpse, and then it flows through the bloodstream somehow. It's getting very reanimatory. It is. But you don't have to take out all those messy organs the way that you do with regular mummification, because they don't rot. They get frozen up by the fluid. The fluid is apparently based on aluminum chloride, but the formula... Spoilers has been lost. Anyway, he lives on this mountaintop mummifying people in his isolated laboratory with only one door. He has a, a vault built, a crypt where he mummifies his son-in-law and daughter. They go into these slots in the crypt. There's six slots in the crypt. So he's mummifying more and more people. People start saying, oh, that's the place with all the mummies. In 1901, he dies. His nurse, Amelie Wiseman, who may or may not have been his niece also, injects him with a, uh, like, he leaves a sur two syringes of fluid after he dies, and uh, instructions, this one's for me, and this next one's for you, Am Emily, once you die, and uh, she injects it, and again, according to DrNoka.com, injects it into his still-living body, a version of the story that also appears on Atlas Obscura, so... 
can really get some telemetry on weird websites yeah, here. It's in two places, it's true. Right. Uh-huh. As long as one of them's attractive. No one would ever copy text completely from Atlas Obscura. That would be wrong. So he's a living mummy in 1901. Uh, his wife immediately moves back to Germany. Perhaps she did not like living on a lonely mountaintop surrounded by mummies as much as her husband liked it. And then she vanishes from the historical record. Emily, meanwhile, stays on as the curator of the place, alone with all the mummies. Peasants in the area, or maybe the aristocratic neighbors in the area, I don't know who, call her the Witch of Avila. Avila is the sort of district that Rancho Buena Vista is in, and say that she has the power. And again, the websites are a little bit equivocal. They say she has the power to speak to birds. Well, <laughs> yeah, Robin, we all have the power. I to have speak that power. Birds. We all have that power. So yeah. what I think may be going on in my most charitable moments is a bit of a translation fluff. And what they mean is speak with birds because otherwise why mention it if she's a witch, but certainly she was talking to the birds because she's only got birds and mummies. That's all there is to talk to. But the question is, can you get the birds to like do anything you want them to Uh, who can say or learn important bird information that is also relevant to you. So anyway, she feels that the death is a coming on her and she writes to the German consul in Caracas and says, when I die, I'm a German citizen. I want my body to be cremated and I want my ashes to be thrown into the sea. But the consul, you know, gets up there after his busy day and she's been mummified, Robin. Someone mummified her. So there you go. He leaves her lying around. They send a a team up in 1929. They look around the place. It's still full of mummies. At some point in the question mark 1930s, his grandson, Nook's grandson, Heinrich Muller, destroys the rancho and lab, quote, looking for a burial. And this is from that Venezuelan tourist website. Um, And so I like the idea of mysterious Germans in the 30s looking for a burial. And by burial, we obviously mean buried magic item or living body of a necromancer. Right, because this mummification that we're talking about is essentially an alternate form of embalming uh-huh. unto itself. Creepy. But yes. We're going to have to kick it up a notch or two to make it into a horror or gaming idea. And the obvious thing, of course, is that these are just placing you, you know, not in suspended animation because that would imply that you would come back to life, but in pre-reanimation mm-hmm. is the obvious thing that would happen. And uh, this is... Presumably why the Witch of Avila wanted nothing to do with that. She did not want to be reanimated later for some sort of war that either Venezuela or Germany would get into. But lots of the other uh, mummies, including dogs and who knows, perhaps birds who gave the wrong information, could Mm -hmm. all be waiting in that crypt, waiting uh, to be revived. So presumably the thing, the buried thing is is the reviver, right? It's the, the radium ray that turns all the mummies into your undead army. Into tantric soldiers. Yes. And so suddenly everything about this would make sense. Yeah. I do want to say that after Muller wrecks the rancho and the lab, basically the place returns to the jungle. People say that, you know, again, the excitable website says that the the enemies, witches against Emily, flowed up and stole all the mummies. Other people say local curiosity seekers stole all the mummies, but the mummies are stole. Um, the crypt flooded somehow being on the top of a mountain. It still managed to do that. And all the bodies floated away or were stole. So if you go now in a modern day game, you've got a ruin and you, your hope is to find the thing that Muller was looking for the radium ray, as you say. But I think this does work better as a trail of Cthulhu type scenario where you are, you know, uh, in the Venezuelan 
not quite jungle, let's say high mountain forest, and you're not deep in the jungle, you're literally two miles out of town, but it's still, you're on the top of a mountain, it's an isolated rancho, there's mummies, you know, what do you want, right? I, I, f- I think mummies with a, com- with a commute is better than regular mummies. Yeah, so this can begin with you tracking down the person conducting the search, but even more so, I think someone has begun collecting the mummies, which different people moved around and put in their shrines or buried somewhere or tried to sell off or, you know, kept as a souvenir. And uh, someone's got the radium ray and they're uh, gathering up all the mummies and, of course, not being too fastidious about who they order the mummies to attack after they activate them. Yeah, that could be a modern scenario. You could still have his mummies, you know, littering the place. And, you know, maybe, you know, there's a a group of um, anti-Maduro guys funded by the CIA's project often. And the CIA is like, oh, great. We would love to, you know, provide you money and guns in exchange for the radium ray that pre-animates the dead. You know, and the and the formula. The formula, of course, is lost. So that's another great MacGuffin to turn up either in the modern day or in the 30s in a trail campaign. And uh, you could, in theory, you know, anytime since 1926, you could have, or I guess 1929, when they went and checked on it and found everything copacetic and mummy rich, you could have a scenario where you go up to Rancho Buena Vista and dig around for the radium ray, or you fight off, you know, jungle mummies that. Uh, that Noka made and just left lying in wait against such a uh, such a, a violation. Well, I, I think now that we've found several different ways to go with this scenario, we've discharged our assignment, but I bet there might be another one waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Follow our best advice and become heroic Patreon backers very much like... Joe Webb. Roger Edge. Alan McSager. Paul and Cleo Bushland. And Andrew it's time once more for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today it is me, Ken, doing the talking. We are somewhere else because we're at Gen Con on day zero. So if the sound seems echoey or we hear joyous gamers running past the theoretically shut door, that's why. And of course, who wouldn't be joyous if you're at the same convention as our guest, Heather O'Neill. Heather, thank you so much. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Heather, you and I go way back, possibly too far back. (laughs) Science can't 
determine how far back I go. <laughs> not that far. Not that. No, no. Obviously, <laughs> I when I met you, you were I think ten. Is my understanding? Yeah. yeah. I, I know you mostly because of your role in Knife Level Games, right? As a sort of factotum business manager. Chris Puncher. Correct. But also you design board games. Correct. Yes. So I have dabbled in RPGs recently, but I, yes, I have a couple of published board games and a couple coming out uh, down the road, too. And they're published with... No, they're published with Ninth Level. With ninth level. Uh, we basically uh, put a board game division in because I was the one that is the board game designer. And I kind of darted that off in about 2014. Yeah, so uh, the, the sort of uh, primitive tactical skirmishing of kobolds ate my baby. Yes. And you said, oh, good lord, I can do better than that. <laughs> oh, this is all it takes to be a game designer. <laughs> oh, I got it. <laughs> oh, if this guy can do it. So um, tell us about Meeple Party, which yeah. right there, who doesn't love that? That yes. sounds good. Yeah, so Meeple Party is uh, my first solo design, and it's a co-op where you are the little meeples, like in Carcassonne, having a party. Right. So uh, basically, I was working on a design, and it was very abstract. And I thought, okay, you could invade this territory, or this could happen, and that could be the theme of the game. But what other theme hasn't there been? What's a more fun, approachable theme? And, you know, as you could probably imagine, knowing me, Ken, we like to have parties and people over. So I was like, it'd be cool if it was about a house party. But instead of it being one of these, some of these board games you see that go that far, they go too far mm-hmm. and it's gross and nobody wants to play them. I said, right. let's do a PG-13 version of a house party. Right. Where house party for tired adults. Correct. That's, like, that's cute and that's fun. And there's some 80s references and there's some little things, but it's not like my kids couldn't play with right. me. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of what I did. And basically it's a, it's a puzzler strategic co-op for one to five where you are little meeples and you're the jerk meeple or you're the flirt or you're the cool meeple and you have a different effect on the party when you enter a room. Right. Okay. So you're, so you're sort of altering the space by passing through it. Correct. That's, Correct. that's, that's a fun high concept yeah. by itself on the design level. <laughs> yeah. And then you're just waiting for some jerk to pick you up and put you down on a board. Exactly. Like happens? if a jerk enters a room, it pushes someone to away, okay. two rooms away right. where yeah. if a flirt goes into a room and attracts someone from an adjacent room and you're trying to set up the board state to take a photo of a cool thing happening. Right. right. So I'm like, Oh, I need three cools and a flirt in the kitchen to take this photo of a high five. I, I feel like there's some uh, Urzupa influence in this almost. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. A couple of times people were like, this is like this mechanic, this is like this. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. But yeah, so it actually, uh, I think it came out in 2019. Pre-COVID is hard to remember, but yeah, mm-hmm. I know it was pre-COVID. Right. But it really, uh, I think it really started like hitting like later in 2019 and then it was COVID. So right. yeah. So we've, we've been going running with that. It's been pretty well received. People like it, uh, especially because it is a non-violent theme completely, and it right. appeals to people that are not looking for something like that. But it has that sort high of strategy, high, almost high abstraction level. Yeah. I mean, like, like your, you know, uh, kill Doctor Lucky type, correct positioning, just lots of possible influences in the stew there. Yes, is that? Uh, I'm, we're going to get to more stuff, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really curious. When I design a role playing game, I'm often taking best practices from other people. And stealing them and using them and, you know, turning them a little bit away so that they fit in the project. Is that your approach? Is it that you consciously look at Urzupa and say, I like that mechanic? You consciously look at Kill Dr. Lucky and say, I like that? Or is it that you are such an experienced and gifted game player <laughs> of board games that it's sort of all in your subconscious and it pops out when you're just drilling the well? I mean, it was a little bit, it came down to a little bit of, yeah, as being a game player, concepts like that, where what if the characters you played 
affected the bored state. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where it came from. And then I was like, okay, well, what if, you know, this happened next? And then as, as a board became evident and mm-hmm. this card started happening, I was like, okay, got a risk. I kind of had a risk element to it at, at very base level. I had a kill Dr. Lucky level at it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Things like that, where I was like, okay, this is like this, but it's different enough because this is what's happening. And I think I can run this way with it. So same, it kind of evolved. I went over the initial concept was, what could be five unique movements mm-hmm. that could happen? Right. And let's, what could I do with them? Right. And that's kind of where it all came from. And yeah. it's sort of, uh, you know, combinations and permutations. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of taking the exceptions based and making it the based. Exactly. There's no, yeah, yeah. no more exceptions. It's <laughs> yeah, all based. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So from that high concept triumph, Schrodinger's cats. Yeah. So that was a really, really fun one. Honestly, that's the impetus of why we started a board game division was because Shockingly, at a bar, uh, we were hanging around with some friends. We were playing some card games. And we got talking about, wouldn't it be funny if there was a card game about Schrodinger's cats and it's like a bluffing game where you're like, are the cards dead or alive? And we just started talking about it. And my other business partner, Adriel, and Chris and I were like, well, we could make this game. I think we could do this. And then we kind of started really working on it together. And then we were like, okay, this is kind of like a cool wire slice variant, actually. Mm-hmm. So we ended up basically working it through. So basically what you're doing is you're determining the number of dead or alive cats amongst all of the boxes in the experiment. Very similar to Liar's Dice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a set card deck. There is uh, character abilities that are cute cats like uh, Neil deGrasse Tabby and Albert Feinstein. That mm-hmm. People love the cat versions of the physicists, but those are abilities that change the game from being standard liar's dice plus the actual probability of the cards Mm -hmm. as you can tell i like math so um that's sort of the synchronon of being a a game designer (laughs) well certainly being a board game designer because i can escape if the story is good enough i mean well trust me the field is littered with really (laughs) successful really fun role-playing games where nobody involved understands math (laughs) 100 100 percent. yes but a lot of board games of course as you know that's that's why i gravitate i think towards that kind of design Mm -hmm. because um I just think that way. So we got going through it, but I also like cute, funny things. So it was perfect, kind of a perfect marriage for that. And Ninth Level was like, hey, we're a publisher. We're in distribution. This game fits our vibe. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the perfect game to release as our first board game. So that came out in uh, 2015. 2015. And it's still super, super popular. And it just got picked up worldwide by Amigo. So it's now going to be coming out next year through Amigo. Great. Yeah. And that's fundamentally a card game. Correct. Right. It's a card game with some betting elements, so there's a few other components, so but there's, mostly there's, cards. It's like a tableau, but yes. not fundamentally a board game in the sense that... Correct. Play. Right. Correct. Yeah. Smaller. Smaller but, components. you know, the, the overlap is real, obviously. You yeah. know, is Solitaire a board game or a card game? Discuss. Uh, not, on my po- not on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've uh, been doing this professionally since 2015. You've been playing board games since forever. Almost certainly you've played, I would venture to say, more than I have. Uh, in terms of pure board game play, mm-hmm. my sense, and it is the sense of sort of a interested amateur, is that we ran into a couple of sort of renaissance moments or blow up moments. And you, you could say the catonification of the American game industry or whatever else, when all of a sudden you could take these sorts of abstract mathematical concepts and wrap games around them. Right. And then we developed a lot of those and a lot of the early designers are sort of aping European designers. And then the sort of American gift for story gets melded into those. And I think 
you know, I just picked James Ernest because yeah. I love him, mm-hmm. but I feel like James was sort of core to that, you know, let's pull back and do theme and do it hard. Yeah. And right now, my sense of board games is that between cost of production and between the fact that there were an ungodly number of board games being released, it was like 150 a month. Yeah. I think. It's probably more because I want to say like it was 8,000 a year or something yeah, now. Right. Something it's, insane. It's just yeah. an insane mm-hmm. amount. And so you've got to swear, even though the creativity may all still be there, it, it's now being choked out. Uh, in the weeds, yeah. Not that they're not creative weeds that we love, but that there's no way that even a really great game retailer can keep on top. I mean, I remember yeah. Chris Hanrahan complaining to me that it's like I could stock nothing but masterpieces, and I would still yep. only have to stock one copy because it would be too deep. Yeah, it's part of the like, overall issue. I mean, we can get into how you can sell direct to the consumer next, but yeah. you know, starting off with the retail is. As you just said, there's so many games that come out every year. You only have so much budget as a retailer, and you only have so much budget as a distributor, and you only have so much warehouse and stocking space. And you only have so much brain space as a player. Correct. And uh, you also, if you're a retailer, want to know what's going on. There's only so many things you can stock that you actually feel like you have a knowledge on Mm -hmm. and are worth putting your time. So, you know, no one really wants to stock restock something from 10 years ago unless it's a hit like a Catan or Pandemic. They want to have, okay, what's new at least? I can at least get 10 new games. They haven't seen these yet. Right. See what sticks. So I do find like reorders are going down. Reprints, I mean, are going down. And uh, restocks at a high level seem to be going down unless it's the top. You know, big games, right. of course. So you can. You used to be able to say, "Wow, I'm really a success if I sold five or ten thousand games." And now I think if you sell like two or three thousand, it still might be a success. It's just it didn't yeah. hit like a Ark Nova. It didn't right. hit like a Catan. And yeah. because there's so many more in the chamber, people don't want to wait around and see if it can find its feet. It's like, right. sorry, you missed your week. Now we have another game that comes right, out. Right, right, right. It's really hard when you've got like this wall of Gloomhaven or something mm-hmm. like really popular and then you're trying to compete with a similar weight game. It's really hard right now. Yeah. So as a designer, do you look around at other designers and think, well, this, you know, Darwinian evolution is good for the field? Or do you look at it and say they're not being able to stay in the business because they can't economically yeah. sell games. What's your take on it? As, yeah, as a that's an interesting question because I've met so many new designers and they have amazing ideas yeah, and, and I'm like really excited to see their games come out. But on the other hand, because of like just a sheer amount of noise in the market, there's just, it's impossible for everybody's game to get through. So it almost becomes like you have to not only have a good design, you have to want to push for that. Yeah. So like, it becomes like you're almost now a business. You're not just, I'm a designer. I sold it. Bye. Because in order to get yourself out there, you have to really push. Really shark it. To either yeah. get signed or put your game out there. So it's really, really tough. But the thing um, that I was going to say that I, I do like about all the new designers coming out and continuing to come out is there's somehow still in, you know, innovative design or iterative of what's already out. Sure. Yeah. I might see a hundred of the same game, but then there'll be 10 amazing games. So it's definitely worth people doing it. But if you came out with a game in 2012 and it was okay, it was probably in the top hundred on BGG. Now, if you come out with a game and it's okay, it might not make the top thousand. It's like the difference in the NBA before and after like the the Lakers Celtics television contract. Right. Right. I mean, there was great basketball players before 1980, 
But there were so many more people watching and so much more money in the field that yeah. suddenly yeah. so many more great basketball players showed up. Right. And it's like, I play tennis. So I'm always thinking of tennis. And like back in the days, I'm like Billie Jean King, you know, mm-hmm. and um, all of the, the wooden rackets in the grass. Like they were good. But like, even though how good they are, they're not Serena. They're not Roger Federer. Exactly. So it's just a young kid right now can come in and actually possibly be as good as the top you know but it's really hard so it's, it's interesting but i think like there is i already see it with companies i feel like there is a tipping point happening with the inflation and the economy yeah. right now and that being people, incapable of getting anything from china ever again yeah, the, the, the cost of everything the time and then the fact that how much you have to charge for your game right uh, now the consumer says well is that worth 50 dollars when it might have only been 30 dollars 10 years ago so it's a really interesting so it's tough uh i think it's tough and it's definitely something like when i work on a new design i think about how would this fit in the market mm-hmm. it helps on a publisher so i right. think that right. way but if it's too similar i'm just like nope that was a cool thought move on <laughs> i mean I could talk to you about this board yeah. game stuff forever, and uh, I very well might, but <laughs> before we yeah. sort of dive into this uh, sorted finance business, is, mm-hmm. is there a, a designer or a design trend that you as a designer look at and say, damn, I wish I was part of that, or damn, I'm glad I'm part of that? Is this, yeah, well... Because I, mean, I only know sort of these absolute, mm-hmm. you know, wave crest designers, and you are, are way uh, more familiar with the field. Someone that we should be looking at? That's a good question. Um, I need a minute on that. But I have the theme of the, t- the group of games that when the roll and write craze hit, which you may or may not be aware of, about three to five years ago till now, if it was a roll and write, like a Yahtzee game, where basically, right. oh, I do it, I roll some dice and I do a thing. Welcome mm-hmm. to is a good example where you flip a card and everybody fills up their sheet. Right. I love all those games and I wish I could have got in on that trend earlier and designed something in that because now it's a little bit hard to get in because there's just too many. But I love those games and I, I would have 100% been down to do a roll and write game. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of designers. It's so hard because there's just so many. But I do have a little bit of, I don't know how much time we have, but I'm on the Unpub board, which is Unpublished Game Network. Mm. So I see a lot of designs and I see a lot of designers and just in general, like I always think, oh, that was, you know, that's a cool design. And then I see this one person's design and go, wow, that's an amazing design. And sure enough, I hear it got signed. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, right. you're, you're great. Like, I can't believe like no one's ever heard of you before. And that's really, really fun. So I am, I'm getting like pings of memories of that, but I honestly can't remember a specific yeah. person. I mean, my, my go-to is always whatever Eric Lang did. Sure. Go by that. Or Elizabeth Hargrave. But by now, this yeah. is like someone saying, you know who's a good filmmaker? That's Scorsese. I feel like he's got a future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, speaking of the future, briefly there was a window when we all thought we could crowdfund our way to joy and success and yeah. agrarian Jeffersonian democracy. Sure. Is that still true? Was that ever true? Did success spoil Tab Hunter? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think it was true for a while because the board and role-playing game industry model of how you sell games is a little different. And there wasn't a marketplace for it, right? There wasn't one place where I could go and check the news of what was coming out. And Kickstarter kind of became that. Right. And everyone goes on Tuesday, what's coming out? What's the new game? Like, it became a thing. Yeah. That you did. That, 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 that happened in, um, like, tarot cards and people who collect decks of cards. Mm-hmm. It's like they go to the mall when they go to Kickstarter. A hundred percent. It's like you go to the mall, like, you're going to go check on these things. So there was a really high uh, level of that. And for, for our younger listeners, the mall was like a uh, <laughs> physical Amazon. 
Uh, If you imagine Amazon, but outdoors and with an orange Julius. Yes, exactly. Oh, wait, orange Julius was not. (laughs) But yeah, so so I think there was definitely a time where it was like that. Because you're a young creator, you could go out, you could, in quotes, compete with Asmodee, Steve Jackson, you know, the the big guns, and that game could then get notoriety and be out there. What ended up happening is the big guns saw it, were like, ooh. I could also do this, mm, right? And yeah. that's fine. Um, but then as everyone saw the big guns make big money, like cool money or not, and mm. everybody else, oh, I could make money on Kickstarter. Well, that's not a hundred percent true. Yeah. It was a good marketplace. I mean, it's still a good marketplace, but you know, it used to be that there was less noise. If you really did have a good game and you had done things right, you would make a good amount of money and you'd fund and maybe become a company after that. And nowadays, I think too many people rely on Kickstarter where they're only really going to give you like 20% of your money. You mm-hmm. have to bring the other 75, 80%. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that's part of the issue there. And then, you know, there's been a little talk about the crowdfunding wars with GameFound and now Backward Kids getting into the game. But I don't know what other option there is than crowdfunding for those small companies. So I think that's going to hang around for a while, but it might, it might end up shifting. I don't know. Or maybe there's a little bit more of a competitive market now, but I think the heyday of it is over. You've got basically what you just talked about, about board gaming, kind of the same thing happening in this space where its successes drew so many people into it that now it's drowned out the quality that gave us the successes in the first place. 100%, you know, and since like GameFound kind of has their niche, they're very board game, BGG, high cost, big right. game heavy. Backer kit's kind of going all over the place, not just games, you know, and Kickstarter at this point has a lot, of course, a lot of other categories, yeah. but games is a lot of their money. So it'll be interesting yeah, to I see how it's like in the top three categories. I, I got to yeah. assume it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, Heather, like I said, I could talk to you all day. Um, I think I have talked to you most of a day <laughs> when I was last in Philadelphia, but um, this podcast must now metaphorically go to the Philadelphia that is a commercial. Thank you so much, Heather, for uh, talking with Ken and Robin. All right. Thank you. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. Of course, this is a conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our protagonist back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time, Ken, they've asked you to go a little further back into time than they uh, usually do, uh, sort of to the point where myth intersects with history. So it's not that you get out of your time machine and you're in a weird mythic realm that's magical. It's just, it's so far away from what actually happened that you often, I think, probably find that the 
things that you encounter there later turn into myths. Right. Specifically, they want to send you back to 750 BCE. And for some reason, I don't know, I think sometimes they just throw darts at a board or something, mm-hmm. like random years. But they want you to see what you can do for the Atemnites. And uh, everyone listening to this knows, oh, yeah, that's one of the tribes that got yanked into the early warfare after the abduction of the Sabine women. Because this is uh, the very, very, very early days of Rome. So early that the king is Romulus. Yep. Speaking of mythical wolf-suckling monarchs. And he introduces the triumph, the uh, thing where you as a Roman leader uh, celebrate uh, how much you ground somebody else's face into the dirt. And the second triumph is the attemnities. And for some reason, Time Incorporated is either offended by this or, you know, they just feel sorry for them because they, they kind of get dragged into a big fuss that's not even their thing, but they jump in right away. And so basically at this point, Rome is basically 4chan. It's a bunch of dudes, bandits, troublemakers, jerks, and they look around and go, there's no women here. How are we going to have a big empire in a big old city if we don't have women? And Ken, that's when they decide to throw a party as a pretext to uh, abduct people. Yes, it's a, a festival of the god Neptune. And I'm just, I'm excited at the notion that the way you get hot hill women to come to your party is to say it's a festival of Neptune. I think that's something that has timeless application. Yeah, so if you get invited to a Neptune reveal party, yeah. double think that. Right, yeah. Make sure that you've texted someone to say where you're going, certainly. So they invite the uh, Sabines, who are the people who live in the hills sort of northeast of Rome, to come down to this big festival of Neptune. And area cities also come because they're excited to find out about this cool festival at this bumptious new city. And at the party, the Romans, of course, make a signal, grab all the women and run away and hide in their in their fort. In, in and by all the women, Livy says 30. Well, first of all, 30 is a magic number. Second of all, might have only been 30, assuming it happened at all. Right. But and, and Livy is, is uh, if it did happen, has a lot of excuses to make for, for this r- rampant act of, of criminality. Well, I mean, his, his main excuse is, well, if we didn't do it, there wouldn't have been Rome, which on the one hand, true, but on the other hand, is this an excuse? Is this what you want to start your great empire of laws and gods on? Is violation of the sacred festival, a uh, violation of the principles of hospitality? Is this your yeah, plan? So the abduction was okay, really. T-shirt is raising a lot of questions. Right. About the t-shirt. I mean, and, and the thing is, this abduction was wrong, even according to what we can imagine was Roman, you know, culture at the time. It was, it was a, a definite emergency action, you know, taken, you know, Romulus is saying, look, we've got to have women. It's just, we, we can't be held back by reverence for the gods or the laws of hospitality that have been laid down since, you know, we came off the steps. Nope. We're going to. Right. And, and I'm not a time traveler, but I'm going to say it's something that you say to your restless chieftains who are sharpening their knives Mm -hmm. and, uh, you need to settle them down so that they don't go, Hey, why are you king? That story. Seems kind of thin. It seems like this city could be named anything. Could be named Steve. And so uh, Romulus sets up this abduction. The cities that had sent guests to this festival are offended on behalf of the gods and possibly on behalf of one or two women that got stolen. Uh, Famously, Romulus steals his own wife from the city of Antemne. 
Herzulia. And, and and according to Livy, the only married woman who was taken. Right. And uh, they, they, they go to war against Rome, but they do it one by one, as will be the habit of Rome's enemies forever. And so... Rome beats them all. It's just like the, the thugs who take on Chuck Norris one at a time. Yep. They beat Canina and Christumne, which is probably the Sabine city, and Antemne, which again is the most important of these cities because it sits on a hill at the meeting place of two rivers, the Tiber and the Amia. And the city of Antemne is kind of a big deal. And so they think, well, we can take these jerks, but, you know, never... I guess, get on the bad side of a wolf-raised myth because every one of them is defeated. And as you say, Romulus invents the triumph to sort of rub their face in it. And remind all of his chieftains with their sharp swords that he's Mm -hmm. the boss. Right. And the main Sabine city of Cures then goes to war with Rome in 751. These dates, of course, are grotesquely approximate based on the traditional founding of 753. Uh, Tarpeia, the daughter of the keeper of the, of the citadel on the Capitoline Hill, betrays the capital to them in exchange for what you wear on your arms in, uh, I think Plutarch's later telling, thinking that they will give her the solid gold bracelet goodies that they wore on their arms. But instead, Sabines may be, you know, currently womanless, but they still know the traitors are bad. And so they smash her to pieces under all their shields and thus perish all traitors, says Plutarch. But at the end of the result, they and their king Titus Tadius, and, and again, Titus Tadius, really, could you have worked workshop that name a little more he fights romulus to a draw at the battle of lacus Curtius, and before they can you know uh the romans win one the sabines win one and then at the end the women run between the armies and say there's enough of us to go around boys and if there's only 30 of them i beg to differ but there we are the war stops Tadius and Romulus became co-kings of rome until 745 when Tadius dies mysteriously Goodness me, what could have happened See, to good old Taddeus? Of sharp swords. Exactly. And Romulus says, no, let's not get into blood feuds over the death of my co-king Taddeus. I'm as sad as anyone, but let's not have a blood feud. Yeah. See, my very best robe got blood all over it. Uh-huh. But I'm not mad. <laughs> I, I'm the real victim. I'm, I'm not mad at all. Obviously, there's all manner of versions of this that, for example, the Sabines did in fact conquer Rome and the Romans had to make up a reason why everyone's great grandma had a Sabine name. And they were like, uh, it's because if we abducted their women, we were really boss. Another possibility is that it's a back formation explaining a cult, the Titian cult that nobody knew anything about. They knew that they were supposed to worship Taddeus and that was their job. And someone said, why? And they made up this cool story. That's another possibility. The third possibility is that it's just nonsense gibble gabble about a bunch of barbarian sword wielders. And eventually Rome sort of agglutinates the various cities around it because they're just that, you know, half step meaner than the guys in the neighborhood. Right. Which would suggest that somebody else invented the triumph and then said, and everybody knows Romulus did this first to the, this tribe and then to the Atemnides. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about this as if you aren't just freshly back from there and didn't see what was actually going to happen. So you're going to be called maintaining kayfabe, Robin. Yeah. It's core. So you're going to be able to crack this story wide open and tell us, you know, what really happened behind the myth. And in fact, whether you are then going to tamper with things and and radically change history because messing around with Rome during its early formation, that's a big timeline shift. So I assume you've just been 
scouting. You haven't done it yet. Right. But what did you see when you, when you got there? Well, um, what I see is that there is a founder of the city of Rome. He is named after the city. He's named Romulus, meaning he is the embodiment of Rome. It uh, begins as that this is going to be the name of the guy who runs Rome will be Romulus forever. Uh, there is a, a good amount of squabbling with the Sabine Hill tribes, not least maybe some abducting, but also some of the how are you going to keep them up in the hills once they've seen Rome, even barely new Rome. The local cities back and forth over who gets to run the Tiber Valley, that's absolutely standard, and it is... Again, basically, luck of the draw that it turns out to be Rome. Again, because Rome has slightly more robust ability to incorporate other cities within it. So, when when you take a city normally, you knock it down, you enslave all the people, and that's the end of it. Well, the Romans said, no, we're going to keep that city as a going proposition. We are going to make you citizens of Rome and give you skin in the game, and the guys who are on our side get, you know, 10% or whatever. It's multi-level marketing. It's mar it's multi-level marketing. That in many ways is the secret of the Roman Republic. So the Romans basically use this political flexibility to expand over the Tiber Valley. There are indeed some warfare, but usually the Romans have Tarpeia style gotten an in with the elites of that city against the main Sabine city of Cures. They do, in fact, have to make a share and share alike deal with Titus Tadius. But as with many people who make deals with Romans, th that turns out to be a short-term arrangement. Al Capone would recognize every tactic used in this. I'll always look at the uh, small print on your multi-level marketing deal. Exactly. On your, oh, how many do I have to sell? So the way to stop Rome from expanding is either just straight up, you know, sneak in and plant landmines around Antemne when the Romans show up. That's sort of a brute force way, but it would certainly do it. The other possibility is at the moment where Romulus, the Romulus, is setting forth this, we're not having blood feuds, we're not doing big colorful revenge on people who surrender, we're instead incorporating them, is to get one of those sword-sharpening other guys to say, or we could raise the town and take everyone as slaves. And if they do that to Canina and Crestumna, Antemne maybe fights a little bit harder. <laughs> and also, they have this enormous, not enormous, but this surly, angry population around them that doesn't see anything better than being taken. And when Cures goes to war with Rome, even if Antemna doesn't survive, he's going to do to them what they did to the cities that were buying his goats and raise it to the ground instead of be co-king of it. And it's the it's about destabilizing Romulus's ability to incorporate other cities and other literal tribes, the Roman political grouping, into the Roman body politic that is the special sauce of, of the Roman Republic. If you undo that at the beginning, when someone says, short term, we could take all their stuff, I think that's not a hard position to put over at a town council with everyone unaccustomedly smashed on much harder wine, air quotes, than they've ever had in their lives. So is there a vacuum that exists that needs to be filled by an imperial force? Is this, if you help the indemnities, does that mean that there's a Curian empire that springs up? Or is this possible future 
one of hill tribes remaining hill tribes. I mean, this possible future is the possible future where you decide whether Macedon or Carthage gets to run Italy because without Rome there to sort of be the seed crystal for the Northern tribes, if you'll notice, there was no other city that ever stood as a rival to Rome. They begin by absorbing these little local cities in the Tiber Valley. Then they absorb Latium. They absorb the Samnites. But at no point is another city doing the same thing. The Etruscans are a bunch of separate city-states. The Sabines, a bunch of separate city-states. The Samnites, a bunch of separate city-states. Even the Greeks, a bunch of separate city-states. No one comes up with the special sauce in our Italian history. So I think the argument is that no, even left untriumphed over, and Temne does not figure out how to become bigger than one hill town in Italy, because no one does uh, except Rome. And that's just the way of the world. They fight the Etruscans and lose, but the Etruscans are a very standard sort of Amphictyony confederation centered around one city, but it's very much a confederation of I'm the strongest guy, much like the Athenian Empire was. It's not a genuine, everyone's got skin in the game situation the Romans managed to pull off with the Republic. So the special sauce is the idea of the unity of a greater network. Just as seven centuries later, Christianity comes along and goes, hey, why don't we have a bigger network that has unity of belief across a large period of time and we bring more people in? And so this is one of those world transforming things and certainly in the case of rome not buying into their unity you know refusing to buy their their string art uh, or mm -hmm. whatever else they're selling with their multi-level marketing got you stomped but that's that's the thing and that is you're arguing here unique to rome yeah i mean certainly you don't ever see it historically in italy i'm not saying that other cities might not have figured something like that out. Spain, for example, seems to have developed almost independently a, a tradition of representative government. So could one of the big Spanish cities, Tartessus or Cadiz or any of those, managed to create something de novo? I don't say it couldn't have happened, but I will say historically, it doesn't happen in Italy without Rome. And if you lose Rome, then, like I say, you're picking... Macedon or Carthage, who do you want to run Italy? Because it's not going to be the Italians. So gaming-wise, I don't think we have to explain how you create an adventurous situation out of Romulus waging war on all of these uh, nearby cities. I, I think it becomes a, a fun setting for hill folk, quite frankly. You could definitely use that as an alternate uh, setting for hill folk. One that's more about politics and, mm -hmm. and about a more uh, sort of developed polity than in hill folk, but that uh, could absolutely work. Uh, you'd sort of be the governing clan of one of these uh, minor cities, or uh, you could also you do a, a drama system thing of being Romulus and his, uh, and his court. Or you could be the Sabines up in the hills saying, this doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could do one or the other. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's uh, time for us to run for the hills out of this episode, but I bet there'll be another one a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast firmly in the pre-mummification stage by joining such backers as... Robbie Carlton. Ruth Tillman. Steve Sigety. Tristan Knight. And Bart Molio. Where this show 
or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest horrific design. This could have been an email. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>